0: Welcome to the 59th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Isendorf, And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about Caleb Doxie's article titled Kubernetes, the surprisingly affordable platform for personal projects. This came across my newsfeed. I'm not sure if it was from Hacker News or some other source in the past couple of weeks. And it really resonated with me on a very personal level in terms of the way that I learn new projects and frameworks and languages. And that I learned by doing, I learned by getting my hands onto something and kind of digging into it. And the, the kind of central premise of the article is you can set up a Kubernetes cluster for experimentation for five or $6 a month. And that was really appealing.
1: Hi, Google cloud platform. How are you today?
0: Um, and part of it is leverage, leveraging the economies of how Google has their always free tier of services you get an f one micro instance for free forever you get what ten twenty thirty gigs of cloud storage for free forever you get some number of backup gigs for free forever so it you can
1: expire Amazon
0: yeah and the first year of your of your Google cloud stuff I think you get three hundred dollars of credit to use as you will
1: yes if you open a new account you'll get three hundred dollars of credit for the first year
0: and I've had a real itch to play with Kubernetes for a while. Um, we mentioned in episode forty-nine in our year ahead, year behind podcast episode about how Kubernetes is kind of taking over, and it seemed to have won the battle of schedulers and things. And like Docker was promoting it, and even the Mesos folks on their their website had mentioned it. But I hadn't had an excuse to play with it at work yet. Um, at work, we're either using legacy stuff with Puppet, or we're doing some things with System D and kind of Docker directly. And this was a really good chance to just dig into it. And I was shocked at how straightforward and easy it was to get this set up. It took me less than 10 minutes to go from an existing Google Cloud Platform account, granted I had one already set up, so I had the SDK and the tools installed sold them on my, my personal machine. But 10 minutes later, I had a functional Kubernetes cluster running with a demo app running as a Docker container on it. It was ridiculously easy,
1: and we'll it's a we'll, well-written article too.
0: Yeah, and we'll throw a link to that article in the show notes. Um, it it walks you through why he designed the things the way he did, and kind of how how he picked the different pieces. But it was shocking to me how quickly it, you can get from nothing to a running, publicly addressable service for pretty much anybody.
1: Really, simply by linking together a couple of uh, free services from Google and different places,
0: and yeah. And if you aren't familiar with the configuration language of Kubernetes, it's a YAML syntax. So it's very similar to the the, kind of the methodology for building a Cloud CloudNet file or building more complicated systemd service files where you're just structuring a text file. There's nothing fussy about it. There's nothing really weird about it. And if you're familiar at all with inlining scripts in CloudNet files for having a configuration script or however however you do that for yourself, this is going to feel right at home. And it's easy.
1: I find it interesting that the article sort of compares that you're going to be writing some sort of boilerplate that describes your job and how to run it. And it gives an example of here's your systemd unit. And is that really any harder or more complex than the YAML specification for a uh, kubernetes job. And really yeah, it's different. Yeah, both of them are kind of painful, but they're both pretty equivalent and easy to to latch onto.
0: Even developers who I've I've worked with in the past and who are friends of mine who aren't really operations people, the specifications here are not complicated and they are Fairly obvious in why you're doing what you're doing. You need certain ports open so your service can talk to Nginx or Nginx can talk to the internet. But there's none of this that is, you're doing this because of the sake of doing it. I was very impressed with just the straightforwardness of it. And as you dig into more complicated examples, if you're trying to do server sets, if you're trying to do other stateful services, it gets a little more complicated, but for the basic stuff, you can get up and running very quickly and very easily. And I was, I was very happy doing that. And if you have Docker installed on your Mac already or on your Linux box already, you can just do, you know, you can Docker run your stuff locally. And then when it's time, you Docker push to the appropriate repository that you set up in your project. And it's all there and it all works. I haven't actually dug into the... Orchestration pieces. Um, that was a kind of a. I was hoping to get to that today, but I haven't gotten through that hump yet of how you do either a rolling deploy or you do a red blue or the red green testing. But
1: yes, red blue green testing. Yes,
0: you know what I'm talking about. Um, I always forget if it's blue green or red green or whatever. but... Red
1: black. I swear they're all interchangeable.
0: And one of the things that he's doing in this article is he is avoiding using the built-in load balancers that Google offers because they're expensive. They charge you by the gigabyte and they can get pricey really quickly. And so he was just setting up an Nginx server to listen on all of the members of the, to have it, have it running run on all of the nodes of the cluster and then register those all with a dynamic DNS script so you have all of them able to, to handle and serve the client requests and route them to the correct daemon. But it's it's really cool.
1: So have we talked a little bit about uh, what Kubernetes actually is for folks? Not yet. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly pretty new with Kubernetes. I've explored lots of other schedulers and, and legacy Docker setups, but I never seem to have an excuse to dive into Kubernetes, and everybody's talking about it. It is the new hotness. And every other project I deal with is targeting Kubernetes and not the environment I'm actually deploying in. So before
0: we dig into the specifics, pretty much everybody these days has a Kubernetes engine or Kubernetes environment or Kubernetes service you can you can dial in. Amazon has one, Google has one, I think DigitalOcean has one. They're all over the place. You can you can spit up your own if you want, and there's dozens of ways to do it from what I can tell. And it, it can get fairly complicated depending on how you want to build and orchestrate. But when it comes down to it, you have a master node that that handles the scheduling, and you have um, cluster nodes that actually run your server sets and your other jobs. And the Google Cloud Platform stuff, the master nodes basically are free. The Google service handles the master node side of it, so it handles the, the scheduling of jobs and the the registration and the resource management pieces. And what you're paying for is the nodes that actually run the services for you.
1: It's really powerful that all the major players have Kubernetes built in now. It's a first-class citizen you need a Kubernetes cluster. You just say spin up on the UI,
0: and it's reasonably portable as well. As long as you're running on similar versions of Kubernetes across environments, your Kubernetes environment from the GKE, the Google Kubernetes Engine, also runs on EKS, the Amazon, um, the Elastic Kubernetes Service, I believe is what Amazon calls it. But you just pick it up and drop it over. It it's there's no Special sauce. There's no real magic. It's the same kind of configurations that you'd apply and you'd bring up. So it gives you that magical that unicorn of oh, we actually can do a a multi-cloud strategy of having Cloud your service strategy, yeah,
1: set up your Kubernetes images and configuration, and it runs wherever you are.
0: Which is extraordinarily powerful for doing microservices or stateless applications because you're trying to get your services up and running as quickly as possible as cheaply as possible across a wide variety of nodes so you can you can balance your request out it, it doesn't handle the stateful stuff as well yet i one of the other pieces of this that i really want to dig into is the the stateful volume creation and management so you can have volumes that are mapped between nodes and then you can actually pr- you can retain not just configuration but data so if you're running a a logging platform you're running a metrics platform you're running a database platform or Whatever it is, you can rely on having your 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 backend data store persist correctly. But it's really quick. One of the things that I'm working on doing now that I haven't quite I haven't quite filled out all the way is moving my personal Git server off of just a couple of um, GCE instances over to the Kubernetes service and figuring out how to get the volume mapping set up correctly and how to get persistence done properly so I can restart services and I can move things around and have it come back up correctly.
1: Come on, uh, GCP has a, a Git service built in. The point of this is, it's a toy
0: in, in a sense. The, the point of this is not to set up a... The point of this
1: is to have a project to actually test out the thing to make it work well. Exactly.
0: I'm not the kind of person who can ever get started on a project without a reason to do it. I have to yeah, have... I have
1: to have some motivational factor.
0: And this was one of those, hey, I should do this. I've been looking for a reason, I'm looking for an excuse to... to spend a couple of hours kind of poking around and I spent maybe an hour today and I got most of the way through bringing up the, the gogs Git service, the, the Golang based Git repository service. And I was getting into bringing up my own environment that brings up my espresso machine boiler monitor and things. When I ran out of time, I had to go back to to doing family stuff, but it was, it was eye-opening how mature this toolchain really is. I was expecting this to have a lot of rough edges and kind of it's feel...
1: mature fast, which is impressive. Yes. As much as, as there are other schedules out there that have integrated Docker support and Docker support well, it's amazing how many rough edges that, that some of the older, more mature schedules sort of have working with Docker. That Kubernetes does not.
0: And also compared to just running this with Systemd services in GC instances via CloudNet, that is error-prone and full of kind of weird edge cases in trying to figure out how the, the various operating systems work. And this is pretty straightforward. So one of the other things that came up out of this whole conversation is there were a couple of tweets, which I'll link to in the show notes, where somebody was comparing EC2 to being kind of the old generation's version of on-prem where it's the old and busted PM people run if they have to, but that's not, that's not the cool thing anymore. And nobody really wants to do that. And it kind of resonated with me. It, it felt as much as it's a hipster thing, it felt kind of right that people aren't bringing up just instances anymore for lots of services. They've, they've delved into the 80 or a hundred Amazon services or the, 30 or 40 Google services that provide a backing store and a message bus and a metrics pipeline and a a logging broker and all kinds of other pieces. So why would you bring up dozens of EC2 instances at this point? You'd bring up your jobs in Docker containers on one of the cloud engines.
1: Makes me feel old.
0: But it reminds me of the transition from bare metal to VMware and then the transition from VMware to the cloud. It's, It's one of those things where you have to stay... Being yes. a practitioner of the field, you have to stay current. And this seems to be where the industry is going right now.
1: And oddly enough, with all the crazy VM stuff that we tried and, and didn't work out or did work out, it seems that we have a pretty big and clear winner in in the Docker scheduler area.
0: And I really like that the winner this time is open source, in the actually open source, you can you can get it and you can run the production code, not some, some light version, some horribly, oh, well, it's not the production, it's not the enterprise, it's not the whatever. It's actually, yeah, you can just go get it and run it. And it is complicated to set up all of the pieces of Kubernetes yourself. If you're setting up a bare metal environment and trying to load Kubernetes onto it, there's a lot of work to be done. And I'm not trying to discount that at all. But it's actually available, which is really a blessing as compared to some of the other larger services that they were open source in name only because it was far too complicated to actually stand them up anywhere.
1: Yes, put your money here and we'll enable all the cool features.
0: I'm just thinking of the various iterations of the OpenShift um, platform that Red Hat had for a long time that well, every major version was a major rewrite as well, which kind of sucked. But the, the requirement to get I think OpenShift 2 up there were 12 or 13 major critical services you had to run. There was the the scheduling engine and the storage engine and the image engine and all these other pieces. The and, engine yeah, engine. And you could do it, but there was no direct or simple path to getting a production level service up. It was very difficult. And I haven't actually looked into running Kubernetes myself in terms of running all the different pieces of it. And so I know, I know that there's a lot of work there but it seems that this is a more accessible approach than the OpenShift engine or the other nominally open source things that other people have written over the years. So Caleb does mention in the article that he has disabled the HTTP load balancing because that is one of the more expensive pieces that Google offers is having their, their load balancer in place costs money for health checks. It costs money for traffic. It costs money for the other pieces. And it's something like eighteen twenty bucks a month, but he's trying to get this down to the cheapest possible configuration under which you can run the actual service.
1: Yeah. For things to be useful, then you've got to be able to play with them in a, a sandbox environment. And you as a, a normal person probably want to do so in a way that's relatively affordable. I used to run uh, my own email and my own chat on a VM somewhere and I ended up with two or three VMs running on different services full time. And that ended up not being overly cheap. So the fact that you can build this for $5 a month or $6 a month.
0: And it's the kind of thing that a lot of developers that I know aren't comfortable playing in the operations sandbox. They don't really know the pieces. They don't know how it works. And this is the kind of environment they can get them up and running very quickly. They have their laptop already that's running Docker so they can do their deploys locally or doing their testing. And so this gives them a very rapid environment that the the cost of screwing up is very low because the dollar cost is very low. And the worst thing you do is you wipe it out and you start again. So it is a relatively risk-free environment to get your feet wet. And that's the kind of tool that I I love giving developers, or I love having developers work with, because it gives them confidence to do operational tasks and kind of get an understanding of what needs to be done and how the mechanics work behind the scenes, if that makes any sense. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to call out in the, the article is, near the end, he actually walks you through basic role-based authentication control and IAM policy stuff, so you can he's not leaving this in the default broken authentication, open to the world or open with basic authentication pieces. He actually is trying to do the correct thing of setting up IAM roles to bind the project to your account securely and without using passwords. So, you know, the communication is relatively secure and in a large environment, in a large deploy, somebody else is handling this for you in almost every case, even for operations. Um, at, with my current customer, I am currently doing stuff in the Google Cloud environment, but I'm not handling any of the IAM stuff because there's a, there's a security team that is implementing and handling most of those bits. But the article that Caleb wrote covers a lot of that stuff and takes it at least seriously enough to pass muster so you're not completely kind of out on your own. And if you were to take the article that he wrote and you were to combine it with Let's Encrypt Docker containers you could build a TLS encrypted, backend authenticated and encrypted service pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. And it's super important that, that even developers who don't have their feet in the operational sandbox have some basic exposure toward uh, the security systems for Google and, and Amazon and how to set up things relatively security. So at least they go through that process of thinking about that as they're as they're designing applications for their professional professional life and walking those through their basic steps in their life cycle. So one sort of thing about kubernetes that kind of was interesting to me is this whole concept of serverless. Serverless is really the big other hipster thing that's out there that everybody's talking about go to a trade show and most of the sessions are about how to run some crazy code in serverless and at what point does Kubernetes sort of walk you past um, that layer of abstraction Um, following uh, this article you're setting up a couple GCE VMs, you obviously get a little bit into the developer or the excuse me, the operational sandbox. So this clearly isn't serverless. You, you're sitting here setting up servers. But in, on the flip side, if this is running for you or running as a service in Google or AWS, there's a point where you just say, here's my YAML config, here's my container. I don't care, just run it, which starts to sound a lot more serverless. Yeah, to me,
0: there's still a little bit because you're defining ports and you're you're linking various pieces together more directly. And I always think of serverless in the traditional lambda sense of you just paste your code into a into an object and you say run my code via whatever runtime. Paste your code into GitHub and it's serverless, right? Well, you're pasting your code into the the little Amazon Web Form to say basically here's my YAML parser or here's my whatever that I want to run on on whatever input on whatever schedule and it's a Python script or it's a bash script or it's a this or it's that or the other. And you're paying for CPU time, but you don't have the ability to configure networking or storage or a bunch of the other pieces. But you're right. This is getting really close to you point your container at the service and you go, you don't worry about what operating system or what other pieces are under the covers. And in a way that's the ultimate promise of system D that we've abstracted away the operating system and we're just left with, with Docker and an orchestration engine. And
1: I don't know. That's it's weird. As I've said before, Linux finally is accepted into the mainstream because you've abstracted everything away from it. All you need is a cheap OS. That's kind of depressing, but is there anything else we want to talk about? (laughs) And on that note,
0: Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 59th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. Stop